You know that feeling when people criticize you for, for loving Jesus and the world is just all against you and yet you just, you just know it's the world that's wrong and because Jesus rules the universe, you don't care what people think. That's what Australians feel when you knock Vegemite. <laughs> all right? Doesn't make me feel insecure at all. I feel proud and sorry for you all. Uh, it's lovely to be back, thanks, and you're making me feel at home by criticizing me. Um, but my kids, Josh and Soph, who have been here before, uh, are really sad that they're not here. So what I thought I'd do, I did this at 8.15 service, and they were okay. I'm gonna get you to say g'day to Josh and Sophie, uh, and it's really simple. You just say, G'day, Josh and Sophie, wish you were here. All right? And I'm going to film it and, uh, and, and, send it and send it to them. Okay? Hang on, let me get this right. Just practice. G'day, Josh and Sophie, wish you were here. But nice and slow. Ready? G'day, Josh and Sophie, wish you were here. If you did it with a more rhythm, it would be good, you know, because it, it could, could sort of bounce along like this, right? G'day, Josh and Sophie wish you were here. You see how, like, you just, you just leave a beat and it sounds great. G'day, Josh and Sophie, wish you were here. All right, sound all right? Let's do it again. G'day, Josh and Sophie, wish you were here. Awesome. So much better than 8.15. All right. <clears throat> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna, and then I'm going to spin around, all right? Here we go. Okay. One, two... Oh, that's their favorite Murphy family right there. All right. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I can't remember how many times I've spoken here, but I know that I've spoken uh, on topics that are um, meaningful and, and uh, important to, to our lives. Uh, I, I know I've spoken to you about the problem of world religions, so many claims out there, what makes Jesus uh, unique. I've spoken to you about the wonderful message of the grace of Jesus Christ toward those who, who don't deserve it. And I've spoken to you about the violence and evils of Christianity through the centuries and what Jesus might say to that. And I know I've also spoken to you, was it last time, about pain and suffering and the answer that Jesus provides for that. But today, I want to talk about something that is in some ways the ground of all of those other things I've talked about. I want to talk about whether this Jesus story is even true. Because actually when you think about it, so what that the Jesus story provides nice emotional psychological answers to deep human questions? if it's not true. Beautiful that Jesus has this incredible answer to the problem of pain and suffering. But if he didn't actually live, if our skeptical friends are right, and the gospels really are just made up stories centuries after the events, then it's baseless, it's wishful thinking, right? 
And the skepticism of our day is huge. And just speaking to people immediately after the 8.15 service, I got a sense that some of you are confronted by a world that criticizes everything to do with the history of Jesus. National Geographic Channel had a multi-million dollar documentary where they claimed to have uncovered a gospel no one had ever heard about before, not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that got into the New Testament, one of these other gospels written by the betrayer of Jesus himself. And guess what? All of the other 11 apostles were lying, and this gospel has the truth. They didn't let on in the documentary that not a single historian in the world thinks Judas wrote this gospel that comes from a century or more later. Not to be outdone, the Discovery Channel got on the bandwagon and produced their own multi-million dollar documentary in which they claim to have found a tomb. In fact, there is a tomb in Talpiot in South Jerusalem and a whole bunch of burial boxes in which people had been laid and in uh, one of the burial boxes was scribbled the name Jesus. And the claim of the documentary was that this may well be the actual tomb of Jesus and Jesus was in the burial box and that would be a real bummer for Christianity, right? Because the remains are still in the box. They didn't let on that Jesus was the sixth most used name in the first century. So which Jesus? Apart from anything, there are about 15 other people in this tomb. It was nuts, but multi-million dollar documentary out there, and you watch it, and it causes you to doubt. Or you read Richard Dawkins, the most famous atheist in the world today, and he says that a serious historical case can be made that Jesus never even lived. So the whole thing is false. And perhaps the most recent claim, in fact, it went gangbusters just this last week, by an American filmmaker, he claims to have found a lost gospel in the British Library. And this lost gospel actually tells the whole story of how Jesus married Mary Magdalene and had two kids and lived happily ever after. Kind of sounds familiar, right? But this one is nuts. In fact, it's probably fraudulent. And the British Library itself has released a statement saying, uh, this document has been well known and uh, it's a document not about Jesus, but about Joseph and Azanoth. That's another story you don't need to know about it. But you see this all over the internet this last week and you think, maybe the New Testament has been hiding stuff. Contrast the skepticism of our day with the claim at the front of Luke's gospel, will you? Because you read the opening paragraph of Luke's gospel and it sounds like he reckons he's telling you the truth. Don't you reckon? Ready? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So Luke, writing in the first century, knows of many other accounts. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Eyewitnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke reckons, this is well documented because many have written about it, 
that it comes from eyewitnesses, this is not fairy tale stuff, and that he himself has investigated everything from the beginning, and that you can know the certainty of these things. Contrast that with the skepticism. So who's right? The skeptics or the claim of the Gospels? And it's in this context that I want to give you just four things of the many things we could explore. Four things to just have in your back pocket for a doubting day. Just to have in your back pocket for the time someone asks you about your faith, asks you about the history of Jesus. Or maybe you're here today with your own profound doubts. Or maybe you're here with deep skepticism. Someone's dragged you along to come hear this Australian speaker. And you're going, oh, good grief. What, I produce Vegemite. What do they know? Well, I hope you find these four things challenging and helpful. Number one, the study of Jesus' life is an enormous historical discipline. I don't mean that people in seminaries are studying Jesus. Duh, of course they are. I mean people are studying Jesus in secular universities in ancient history and classics departments. They are studying Jesus like they study Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar. And it is such a large discipline, it is hard to convey to people who haven't dipped into the literature just how fast it is. At Macquarie University, where I hold a position, it's a state university, a public university, uh, here I'm in front of section B, which is the section for the history of Christianity. And um, there is a vast collection of historical Jesus books. In fact, I kid you not, there would be more books on the history of Jesus than on the history of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar combined. That's how big the discipline is. The other shot is me teaching a course which I teach each year at Sydney University, which is another of our state public universities. And uh, we take students through 26 hour-long lectures on the historical Jesus. Don't worry, this is just going to go for half an hour today, right? But at the end of 26 lecture hours, I, I honestly feel like I have just helped students taste this massive discipline. And the reason I'm telling you this is when you meet friends who say that Jesus is just like Santa Claus or the Hobbit or, you know, Peter Pan, or it drives me nuts. Because I want to say, can you take me to the Santa Claus section in the ancient history part of the library? Where's, where's, the, where's the first semester course I can do on The Hobbit? It just has no credibility to place Jesus in a kind of mythical section. This is a vast historical discipline and worthy of your respect, even if you're an atheist here today. When it comes to the historical Jesus, you are in the presence of a massive intellectual field. And it deserves a little humility and openness. 
Secondly, we can piece together the life of Jesus from ancient non-Christian sources. Did you know that? That even if we didn't have a Bible, not one Christian writing, we could tell you that there was a famous teacher, healer who was crucified, whose name was Jesus and he came from Galilee and he um, had a brother called James and a mum called Mary and his life ended by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate and whose believers uh, after him thought that he was the risen Messiah. All of that we can know from non-Christian references. There are 11 non-Christian references to Jesus from the ancient world. I won't take you through all of them uh, today. I will just tell you about a couple of them. Here's Tacitus, the greatest of ancient Rome's writers. If you know anything about, say, the ancient emperor's Caligula or crazy Nero, you got it from Tacitus, probably via your history teacher who got it from Tacitus. Tacitus, the great Roman uh, statesman, wrote a, a wonderful account of ancient Rome. In passing, in Annals 1544, he says this, and you get a sense of how he's not a fan of the Jesus movement. Christians derive their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition, thus checked for the moment, broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. <laughs> As I say, he's not a fan of Jesus, but he, in passing, confirms a bunch of really important details. Here's another non-Christian writer from the first century, the Jewish aristocrat and army general Josephus who's left us with a massive history of the Jewish people that is uh, our golden source for Jewish history of the period. And in passing, he says, at this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man. He was a doer of startling deeds. The Greek of this is paradoxa erga, which means baffling or weird paradoxical deeds. Paradoxa erga. It's him trying to say, everyone says he did miracles, but I don't know what they were. I'm just going to call them weird deeds. Okay. He was a doer of weird deeds, paradox erga, and a teacher of people. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And in another section of his writings, he refers to Jesus' half-brother James. And so Ananus, the high priest, convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ, and certain others and delivered them up to be stoned. This is really intriguing. We know James from the book of Acts and from the letter of James. That's written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? We didn't know from the New Testament documents how he died. And here is from a non-Christian this incredible reference to James dying for his faith in his brother. But Josephus references James by his more famous brother, Jesus, the one they called Christ. We could go on through the other non-Christian references, but my point is really very simple. The broad outline of Jesus' story is regarded as beyond reasonable doubt by secular historians. So confident of this am I that a few years ago I put a rather cheeky challenge on Facebook and Twitter and more recently in the public media. It went like this. 
I'll eat a page of my Bible if anyone can find a single professor of ancient history, classics, or New Testament in a real accredited university anywhere in the world who thinks Jesus didn't live. And then I tweeted the same thing and waited. I was fairly confident. I know the field pretty well. I was pretty sure there's no professor out there. But then this reasonably famous Australian atheist called John Safran, who has over 50,000 followers on Twitter, retweeted my tweet. And I thought, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. For the next few hours, I got bombarded by atheists who who, who were like, we're going to make you eat your Bible. And and then I waited a couple of hours and they were, you know, still just insulting me. Um, and, And then they started firing at me names of professors who didn't think Jesus lived. It was so funny. They gave me a professor of poetry, professor of German language, professor of psychology, professor of philosophy, even a professor of folklore. Not one professor of ancient history, classics, or New Testament in any accredited university in the world. I got so bolshy just a few weeks ago, I published in our uh, major uh, public broadcaster, the ABC, which is like NPR, but cooler. Uh, And (laughs) so I published a whole article offering this same challenge. You find me one professor of ancient history, classics, or New Testament in any major or accredited university in the world, and I'll lead a page of my Bible. Still, no one has offered it. Like, I have even prepared which part of the Bible I would read. I'm thinking Matthew chapter 1 would be good. You know, I'll, just, I'll, I'll cut it up into little pieces and have it on my Vegemite toast in the morning. <laughs> Because right? with Vegemite, you can't taste anything else, doesn't matter. <laughs> Contrast this. Richard Dawkins, a highly intelligent, highly respected scientific academic, but in his book, The God Delusion, in trying to cast doubt over Jesus, says a serious historical case can be made that Jesus never lived at all as has been made by Professor G.A. Wells of London University. You read that and you think, wow, a professor from London University, that's a top school, thinks Jesus never lived. And then you do a little bit of Googling and you discover that G.A. Wells is professor of German language. Professor of German language. He doesn't have any training in ancient languages, any training in ancient history, any training in New Testament, nothing. He's just a really smart German speaker. And I ask myself, why is Professor Dawkins, whom I respect in his own field of biology, citing a professor from a completely irrelevant discipline as not believing that Jesus lived. What has that got to do with anything? Can you imagine how Richard Dawkins would respond if I made some outrageous scientific claim and offered a professor of poetry as my sole uh, authority? He would rightly say something fishy is going on. You're hiding stuff. And so I find myself thinking, the skepticism of our day is not driven only by intellect. It's driven by something in the heart. Because if a highly respected professor from Oxford University, like Richard Dawkins, can do something as fishy 
as citing an irrelevant professor about a historical reality. It tells you that unbelief is driven by more than the mind. It's driven by passion, driven by preferences, driven by biases. We can piece the story of Jesus together from non-Christian sources. Thirdly, the New Testament evidence is taken seriously in part because it's so early. This is the thing that I, I, I want to I stress. It's hard to convey. The New Testament is regarded as a real historical text by secular scholars. They don't treat it like the Word of God, like you and I do. You know, I got up this morning and I, I read Hebrews 9 and, and, I, and I asked, Lord, speak to me. I, I'm treating the New Testament as the Word of God, right? New Testament scholars, when they're acting as New Testament scholars, or ancient historians, when they're acting as ancient historians, don't treat it as the Word of God, but they do treat it as a valuable first century text. In fact, you can look up major scholarly textbooks on things unrelated to Jesus, and you'll still find the Gospels quoted as evidence about other things. You'll, you'll read the definitive account of, say, the Pharisees in, let's say, the Cambridge History of Judaism, which is the sort of state-of-the-art, about 1,000 pages on ancient Judaism. And you'll find the article in there, which is about 100 pages long, on the Pharisees, cites the Gospels tons of times, even though it's written by a non-Christian. And you'll find this in so many different areas. The New Testament is a, is a real source. And part of the reason it is taken so seriously is that it's so early. By ancient standards, the New Testament was written very close in time to the events it purports to tell. By comparison. And I want to give you a taste of this by putting on the screen these four comparisons which will give you a sense of what historians usually are working with. First example, the earliest biography of the founder of Islam, Muhammad, was written 125 years after Muhammad died. 125 years. He dies, 125 years later, his gospel, if you like, called the Sirah, is written. And then it's edited for another 50 years, and then that's the official account of Muhammad's life. Or take uh, the first written records of Siddhartha Gautama, whom we call the Buddha. Right? The Buddha dies, and then 350 years later, we have the first written texts about him. Now, these are not just Dixon's favorite dates. These are the normal scholarly dates that Muslim scholars and Buddhist scholars will give you. But my point is, the first writings of Buddhism don't appear till 350 years after the Buddha is dead. Now, you may say, oh, well, then we can't trust anything. That's not the case. Because Buddhists in the ancient part of northern India practiced oral tradition. You still see it today when you see Buddhist monks, say, in Thailand, chanting over and over and over in unison. Have you seen that? What they're chanting are the Buddhist scriptures. And that's how they preserved it from the time of Buddha 
to the time it was written down. They would get together and chant the sayings of Buddha over and over and over. And that's how they preserved it. It's fixed. And then it was written down 350 years later. So there's tons in the Buddhist literature that scholars think probably comes from the Buddha. Third example. You've all heard of Alexander the Great. He changed the world. Uh, no, no one doubts the general course of his life. But did you know that our first extant or existing source for his life is written 120 years after Alexander died. It's called Polybius. And yet Polybius is not our best source, it's just our earliest. The best source is called Arian. And Arian writes 400 years after Alexander is dead. And you go, well, how, how can that be? How can that 400 year time gap possibly preserve ancient material? The answer is simple. Arian used earlier sources. Those sources are now lost, but they're collected in Arian. And actually, scholars will tell you the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, does the same thing, uses earlier sources. The fourth example, I think, is um, most comparable to the New Testament. Emperor Tiberius ruled the world when Jesus lived, between AD 14 and 37. Uh, they're his dates. And the um, best account of his life, the one that historians today trust the most, is Tacitus, whom I've already mentioned. But the thing is, Tacitus writes about Tiberius 77 years after Tiberius is dead. 77 years. The reason I'm telling you this is because you need to know what historians generally have to work with for the ancient world. That is normal. Those kinds of dates, those kinds of gaps between figure and writing is normal. What are the New Testament dates then? Hold that in mind. 125 years after Muhammad, you get uh, the first account of his life. 350 years after the Buddha, you get the first accounts of his life. 120 and 400 years after Alexander the Great, you get his sources. 77 years after Tiberius, you get his sources. All New Testament documents were written within 65 years of Jesus. All of them. These are not Dixon's favorite dates. These are the normal secular dates for New Testament writings. Some of the New Testament writings come from within 20 years of Jesus. And that is extraordinary in ancient history terms. But even our latest text in the New Testament, the latest one, the one furthest away from Jesus, is still closer to Jesus than is our best source for Emperor Tiberius. Our best source for Tiberius, 77 years later. Our latest New Testament text, only 65 years later. And what's more, we have this, which scholars of all stripes, Jewish, atheist, Christian, whatever, regard as the earliest fragment of a reference to Jesus that we can date to within just a few years of Jesus, pre-AD 35. The bit in yellow is a creed which the early Christians said as a summary of their faith. You know, like uh, some churches say the Apostles' Creed. Well, that Apostles' Creed comes from about 150, 200 years after Jesus. It's a very important creed. But this one is actually preserved in our New Testament. But it's one that we can date to before the year 35. I had the great privilege of handling the oldest manuscript of this very creed. I can't resist showing you. In this glass frame is the earliest example of Christian oral tradition. 
Here, the Apostle Paul reminds the Corinthians of a fixed summary of the Christian faith, which he passed on to them years earlier, and which he himself had received shortly after his conversion. Mainstream scholars date this summary to within months of Jesus' death. Hoti Christos, apethenen, huperton, hamation, hemon, katatas grafas. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Kaihoti etafe, and that he was buried. Kaihoti egergatai tehemera tetrite katatas grafas and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Kaihoti uther kefa eta tois dodeka, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. These words were in common Christian usage before the year 35. Whatever else we may want to say about the basic plot of Jesus' life, it clearly wasn't a legend growing up over time. This fixed summary, or creed, provides evidence that the broad narrative of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection and appearances was being taught and memorised decades before the details were written up in the Gospels. The study of Jesus is an enormous historical discipline. We can piece together the life of Jesus from non-Christian sources and the reason the New Testament is taken so seriously as evidence is that it's so early. Fourthly, and finally, archaeology strongly supports broad and specific elements of the Gospels. Right now, important digs are going on all around Israel, and some of them are uncovering some very special stuff for the study of the historical Jesus. And the thing you need to understand is archaeology generally is not done by believers. Generally, it's not people from seminaries going and doing these digs. It's people from archaeology departments in major state universities. Or it's the Israel Antiquities Authority, which is the, um, the Israeli state archaeological organization. And what they're uncovering is phenomenal. Um, just, uh, here is just a couple of shots, but just uh, recently they uncovered first century Magdala. The reason this is so wonderful is that Magdala is where Mary Magdalene is from. Mary Magdalene means Mary of Magdala. Magdala is a, uh, a little town on the coast uh, of uh, Lake Galilee. And uh, what they've found and what you're looking at in this shot here is the synagogue of Magdala. And around the synagogue, there are all these ritual baths which priests and Pharisees used, telling us it's a very pious Jewish town. And in the middle, this wonderful synagogue, which we can date to the early part of the first century because of coins that are found there that date it very precisely. Um, Historical Jesus scholars would regard it as certain that Jesus preached in that building you're looking at on the screen. Another example. In John chapter 5, there's a reference to a pool uh, near the sheep gate, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. 
and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. John is very specific. Sounds like he might be an eyewitness to the things of Jerusalem, right? And five covered colonnades, five rows of columns, in other words, is a really weird style of public bathing pool. But John says it's there. But they dug up all around uh, what we thought was the Sheepgate area and not found this pool. It would be pretty easy to know which pool it's talking about because five covered colonnades, there would be remains for that, surely. And some people began to doubt that it existed, that John made a mistake here because they couldn't find it. Some even went into print, I kid you not, saying, oh, maybe this is like a beautiful metaphor for the first five books of the Old Testament, five covered colonnades and was never meant to be taken historically. And friends, then they dug slightly to the left. And guess what? A pool near the sheep gate with five, the remains of five covered colonnades, still perfectly visible. Without doubt, the pool of Bethesda. You'd think they'd learn their lesson, uh, because there's another pool in John chapter nine that says uh, Jesus uh, sent someone to be healed at the pool of Siloam. Now we know the Siloam or Silwan district of Jerusalem, okay? Really, we've known it from ancient times. Dug all around Siloam and not found a public bathing pool. And so again, some people, not, not many, doubted that there ever was such a pool. And then just in June 2004, okay? I mean, that's like yesterday in ancient history terms. Like June 2004, during some sewerage works, they were digging, right? And they dug and they found these steps. And here they are. Don't worry about what he's saying, I can say it better. So it's uh, these beautiful steps. And see how the, st the, the steps are made. They are the giveaway that they are made in the Herodian period, Herod the Great period. We can tell his style immediately, um, which dates it to the first century. And, and here's an artist's impression coming up of uh, what the pool will look like when they finish digging. They still haven't finished digging uh, uh, this, this pool out. That's what it's going to look like. The largest bathing pool ever found in Israel, smack bang in the middle of the Siloam district, just like John's Gospel said. Oh, this is very special, for me anyway. This is an inscription found... <laughs> underneath the courtyard of a maximum security prison in the middle of Israel. Now, you may be wondering, as I was, what was anyone doing digging in a maximum security <laughs> prison in order to find this, okay? <laughs> Details are sketchy. But they've found this beautiful mosaic. The Israel Antiquities Authority was called in. They've shut off the whole courtyard. They're thinking of moving the maximum security jail because they have discovered an entire town underneath this prison. But the great thing is, in the middle of this town is a beautiful villa with a large room that is the earliest datable Christian church. And the inscriptions on the floor are the dead giveaway. And this is an extraordinary inscription. It says... A Keptus, the lover of God. A Keptus is a, a, a woman. A Keptus, the lover of God, devotes this table, which I'll show you in a second, in honor of God Jesus Christ. Do you see the words that are overlined 
In the ancient world, you didn't underline things, you overlined it to stress the importance. See the overlined words? They're the words God, Jesus Christ. Akeptus obviously asked, make those words special, will you? God, Jesus Christ. Well, I got to visit this um, for a documentary in Australia, and I can't resist showing because it was one of the most special moments of my career to be able to stand where brothers and sisters stood so many centuries earlier. Megiddo is the site of the earliest church building yet found. This strategic trade city contains the remains of a Christian prayer hall dating to the third century. It contains three mosaic inscriptions pointing to its Christian use. What's especially interesting is that this community was probably made up of Greeks and Romans, not Jews. One inscription commemorates a Roman army officer who contributed to the mosaic's construction. This is early physical evidence of the extraordinary reach of the Christian message. What started as an exclusively Jewish movement soon became a predominantly non-Jewish or Gentile movement. But the message stayed the same. One of the inscriptions refers to Jesus as a God. Okay, so here in the corner of the mosaic in this prayer hall, we have an inscription that tells us about a woman called uh, Akeptus who uh, offered this table, a reference to the table in the middle, probably the table where communion was had, uh, in memorial of the God Jesus Christ. So here, if the chief archaeologist's uh, dating is correct, early third century, we have a clear reference to Jesus as divine, almost a century before the Council of Nicaea, before Constantine. This discovery has sunk a very skeptical story that you often hear. And the story goes like this. Jesus in the first century was just a lovely Palestinian teacher. He just, you know, said, be nice to everyone, right? And only centuries later in the fourth century did Emperor Constantine force the bishops to gather in a council called the Council of Nicaea where they voted on Jesus being God now. Jesus was elevated from being a lovely Jewish teacher to being divine. And only in the fourth century did that idea come about. You often hear that. This has sunk that forever because it predates Constantine by more than a century. In the middle of Israel is an inscription to God, Jesus Christ. And I, and I tell you, standing there where my brothers and sisters centuries ago stood and had a meal right at that table where they remembered the death and resurrection of Jesus was very, very touching. So, back to Luke. Luke says this comes from eyewitnesses. Luke says he's investigated this from the beginning, and then he says to his patron, Theophilus, look at the last lines, I write this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. The word certainty there is the Greek term asphaleia, from which we get the term asphalt. You know, do you use the word asphalt? You know the stuff you build roads with? What do you, what do you call that? You call it? You call it asphalt. Well, <laughs> extraordinary. Like our languages must be related or something. It comes from this word. Asphalea, 
You know what it means? Solid. So that you may know how solid this is. The history of Jesus is solid. Don't let your doubts keep you from making moves toward him. You know, I meet people as I travel around who fall into two categories, at least two categories. I meet those who won't take any step toward Jesus until they've had every question answered, every T crossed, every I dotted. Do you know people like that? And then I meet other people who have taken every step around Christianity They go to every event, they turn up at church, except that last one. Can't quite do that one. I'll just just keep walking around. Much better just to walk around Jesus. But not that last one. I had coffee with this guy who was in the first category. He was a statistician. And I had coffee, and, and he'd, he'd come to lots of different Christian events and was pondering it, but hadn't made any steps toward Jesus. And I said, look, you know, you've been asking so many questions. Why, why won't you make any step? You know, why won't you start praying? He says, well, because I've got to have every, every answer. I've got to work it all out before I make any step. And I said, man, would you do that in a relationship? You know, if you're trying to get to know someone, would you ever really want to know everything about them, have every T crossed, every I dotted before you made any step toward them? And he went, oh yeah, I've done that once or twice. <laughs> and then there's this other woman who falls into the other category. I met her in Bath in the, in the UK. Uh, Bath, the city, I didn't meet her, in a Bath. <laughs> And, and she, was, she was the circling kind. She'd been circling Christianity forever. A Christian friend had brought her along to an event I was speaking at, and, and she came and she, you know, she loved it. But you know, she'd been to like a hundred of these different things. And I got to talk to her afterwards, and she was telling me how many Christian events she'd come to and how attracted she was to Christianity and how she'd been going to church, and, but not yet become a Christian because she couldn't take that last step. And we went round and round and round, and I eventually said to her, Have you got any good reasons not to take the last step to trust in Jesus? I'll never forget her reply. It was very honest. She said, I've got practical reasons. None of them very good. And then she went off. I'm sure she's just still circling around, going to Christian events. And what I want to say is, wherever you are at, perhaps you're the kind of person that needs to have every T crossed, every I dotted before you take even one step. I just want to say, that's not how you get to know people. That's maybe how you do a maths formula. It's not how you enter into a relationship. You take a little bit of a step, you give a little bit of yourself and watch what comes back. So for some of you, I really want to stress, take a little step in the right direction. And for others, maybe you've taken every step but the last one. You've been circling Jesus for so long. Why not land? Because this stuff is asphalea. 
steady, sure. We're going to do communion. Are we going to do communion? As Christians have taken communion from the very beginning. And as you take that bread, taste that grape juice, I just want you to remember that Jesus was as tangible as that bread in your mouth. The history of Jesus is as touchable as that. Take whatever step is appropriate for you. Let me pray. Please, Lord, take what is good and true of the things we've looked at today and apply them to our hearts. Help us, Lord, please, as we taste the bread drink the juice, to know the tangibility, the surety, the strength of your love, of your death and resurrection. Lead us, Lord, for we ask it in Jesus' name.